Welcome everyone to our podcast, Land and People, where we interview people who have ancestral and or professional ties to the land. I am Melissa Camara. I am a conservationist and an artist here on Hawaii Island. And I am Clay Charnicht, uh, Extension Faculty at the Natural Resources and Environmental Management Department. University of Hawaii at Manoa. And we always say, you know, the views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of our employers or funders or the folks that we interview. We just like to make a kind of safe space and a open format for people to, to share stories. Yes. Please rate and review. If you like the show, we've been doing it for a little <laughs> while now. Um, second season. We're rolling. Yeah. And we do so appreciate all of you folks listening to this, I just want to say we are almost up to 6,000 downloads. That's great. It's just so much mahalo to all of our, our listeners out there. I will say back on the review thing, there's 17 people who have rated us. So I know there's more than 17 of you out there. <laughs> also, again, to show you how much we mahalo you for your reviews, I do want to read one review from CGC who says, an outstanding, in-depth dive into the minds of some of Hawaii's most notable conservation heroes, gurus, and icons, capturing their unique voices and stories for posterity. A must-listen for anyone in the field or interested in the triumphs and tragedies of island conservation. Ooh, Mahalo, Nui Loa, CGC yeah. for that review. We need more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you want from us. And speaking of conservation gurus, today is a really fun and special um, one. You know, we've been and different and different in that we had a whole group of people with us talking about Dr. Lloyd Loop, who is just so well known in, in our field here in Hawaii as it relates to ecosystem management and invasive species in particular. Again, we've been so focused on Maui um, all of this season and all of the folks that we interviewed, um, with the exception of Lloyd's daughter, are on Maui um, working actively in conservation. So we had a number of his colleagues, including my husband, Chuck Camara, who's worked in invasive species, Taya Peniman, who was the MISC manager, Maui Invasive Species Committee manager for many years, um, working closely with Dr. Loop and his son, Marshall Loop, who who is uh, with the Hawaii Department of Agriculture as a master journeyman and um, agriculture inspector, his daughter, Brooke. Who else did we have? Pat Biley, who is um, retired with the Nature Conservancy. It was a great conversation. And just to kind of recreate, not really, you know, Lloyd's life. I'm the only one sort of in the dark here because I, I never got to meet him, you know, aside from seeing his papers, like you read through the stuff that he's contributed. And it really uh, is astonishing to think about just the role of biology and ecology in Hawaii and kind of what it's contributed to the rest of the scientific field. And this is really like, you know, one of the giants who we're all standing on the shoulders of, right? So to just to understand and get a little insight into like who he was and what he did, and it wasn't so much about, you know, biography of Lloyd, but just more through how he affected and influenced the folks that we got to speak with. So it was, it was really fun. Yeah, it was. The takeaway for me as someone who's been working large scale across 
landscapes um, in conservation is that it wasn't always thought of that cross-boundary work was not a given back in the day. It was not people were working in their specific TMKs or TACNAP keys. They're within the boundaries of the national park. What Lloyd was proposing and what others in his cohort were doing at the time, which was to fence across boundaries, deal with weeds across boundaries, deal with things in a much larger scale. That was not that was not happening back then. And we take it for granted that we do that nowadays, but it's really that work is resting on his shoulders and that of many others at the time who really broke the mold. Yeah. So we have that to thank him for. So The whole island and into ag and conservation, all these linkages that we sometimes either don't think about um, and lots of things we probably at this point, many of us just take for granted that we have these organizations doing this work. Yeah. And so with that, we'll introduce um, a tribute to our next guest, Dr. Lloyd Loop. Formerly the lead researcher at Haleakala National Park and retired lead scientist with USGS Biological Resources Division in Hawaii. Welcome to our show, Land and People and Lloyd. <laughs> um, Land and People and Lloyd. Yes, we're so happy to have you guys. Thank you for joining us. So, um, who wants to start with introductions? Teo Peniman with the Maui Invasive Species Committee. And I first got to know Lloyd when I started working there in 2002. Awesome. Who wants to go next? Chuck? Nice to see everybody. I'm uh, Chuck Kamara. I am a botanist with the Hawaii Invasive Species Council, but most people know me as the husband of a famous artist and podcast. <laughs> and I wanted to say that thanks to Lloyd, I just nine days ago celebrated my 32nd year in the Hawaiian Islands. Wow. So Lloyd plucked me from obscurity and a life of snow in Buffalo, New York, and brought me to Maui in conservation. So thank you, Lloyd. It's amazing. <laughs> yes, thank you, Lloyd, for bringing Chuck to Hawaii. Uh, that's another story for later. Um, Pat, can you unmute and tell us who you are and where you work? I'm Pat Biley. I've lived on Maui almost 50 years and started a conservation career in 1990. And I had met Lloyd when he worked at the National Park around that time and was so impressed with just his, his view of science. Kind of hearing him talk influenced the way I thought about things. Yeah. And, and you're being super modest, Pat, but you really were are sort of like the premier botanist ecologist with the Nature Conservancy there um, on for the Maui program for, I don't know. <laughs> My official was I was an invasive plant specialist and, of course, did a lot of other things like public outreach and working with other groups. Um, so I worked for the Nature Conservancy 28 years and I'm now happily retired. Well-deserved. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brooke and Marshall. Um, yeah, I'm Brooke. I was about seven years old when we moved our family here. Uh, my dad was at Everglades National Park. Um, and family lore is my mom encouraged him to check out the job in Hawaii. And um, yeah, so we we moved here when I was seven um, and grew up in Mukawao and now live in San Francisco. Are you older, um, Brooke, than your brother Marshall here on the line? Or who's I am. Yeah, he hadn't been born. He was born in Hawaii. Um, there's myself and then Bennett 
Our middle brother was actually born in Homestead when he was at the Everglades. And then Marshall was the one born on, on Maui. So there's what, nine, nine years between me and Marshall. Yeah. I would love to hear from, from you both just about your dad's work at Everglades and what intrigued him to want to come to Hawaii. I believe it was, he read the natural history of Hawaii. And I think that really sold him on, you know, moving here. Mm-hmm. I think he chose Maui because I think there was a few options at, at Mauna Kea and Haleakala. And I think he just fell in love with the national park here on Maui. He had been in the National Park Service. Um, he was working at Grand Tetons when my parents met, and that's where I was born. He was one of the um, pioneers of some of the fire science there, of the, the let it burn policy. Uh, Somewhere in our papers, we have a a Time Magazine article that quotes him as saying, Smokey the Bear has been lying to us for years. Um, (laughs) That's great. He really pushed that. That was back in the 70s, I think. Um, And so he really encouraged the importance of fire and the ecology. From there, he spent some time with UNESCO in Europe um, and then ended up at the Everglades and then to Hawaii. So ahead of his time, as always. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly enough, back then it was considered a hardship assignment by the U.S. government. They they <laughs> had some kind of hardship allowance where he we got uh, plane tickets to go back to the East Coast. His home is registered in Virginia, where he grew up. Um, mm. Every four years or something, so that he could see his family, because it, it was such a hardship to to live on Maui. Oh, on to Maui. Sounds ironic. <laughs> I know. You, you know, he was really the the first in his family. He had, you know, his dad was a World War II veteran and tractor salesman. His mom was an English teacher in very rural Virginia. Um, and they just his whole family fell in love with nature. And he's the oldest of four and really mm-hmm. cultivated a love amongst his sister and two brothers um, who all ended up kind of naturalists on some level. Yeah. I mean, he would have been a research scientist back when the National Park Service had research scientists in-house, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before they scooped them all out and stuck them in another agency. So he came and took a research science position um, in Haleakala National Park. And what year thereabouts? It would be 1980, I believe. Late 80, early 81. I think it was 80. Is that right, Marsh? Well, you don't know. You remember. Yeah. I kind of remember it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But do you have memories when you were young of like, was he kind of dragging you guys up there for work? Was it kind of that situation or were were you guys? Majority of my time at the uh, headquarters, (laughs) the freezing office. Right. The barracks up there. I think I worked in the gift shop a couple summers. I don't think it was until I went to college that I realized that most families didn't go like pull my conia and look for ants yeah. and all that kind of stuff with their families. Like most people had right. um, different Not back kinds then, of memories least. from their families. The weekends pretty much up to high school is pulling uh, fountain grass in Waihu uh, and oh, yeah. Wailuku Heights before the houses were there. That's awesome. It was Oxenia Grandis right. and then wow. Myconia. Beyond the park boundaries, he's thinking oh, yeah. whole islands. Yeah, I remember I did a whole science fair project about the ant population of that, uh, was that Waihu Heights as they were building it because they were disturbing so much of the ground. We went up with those little right. sucking things to get ant samples and put out like different kinds of bait. <laughs> to see what ants we attracted and drew a whole a chart of the whole island um, and what ant species we found where 
And I, I thought it was great fun. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So you were kind of into it then. It wasn't like, oh, my dad's just taking on some, some weird place. We got to go do this thing or whatever. You were kind of like, all right, I'm down for <laughs> pulling weeds or whatever. Absolutely. Which you topics a little bit. I was, I was on the phone with Ron Nagata to see if I could maybe arm twist him to come. This is Ron Nagata, the f- retired chief of resources management. And he was busy too. I want to share this photo uh, of Lloyd. Ron did say that he was the very first person to take Lloyd into the crater um, as a backcountry ranger, I believe. There's your dad there on the far left. So it's, yeah, three people standing along pretty rocky terrain. So imagine we're up in the crater somewhere. 1980 is the date. There's a yeah. date on it, actually. It would have been pre-goat uh, eradication too, which is why, you know, I mean, okay. that, that terrain is definitely pretty rugged and might not have had a lot of vegetation to begin with, but it also looks like um, may have been under some goat yeah. browsing pressure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably a lot. And Ron said digital is Dr. Don Gardner, who worked with Cliff Smith and Chief Ranger Barry Cooper. I will say there was a... Uh, we, we thought it was so much fun that there was a comment that Marshall made when he was little. Uh, I think I believe it was a discussion over doing the dishes. And my, uh, my dad was commenting he was so tired from work that day and, and wanted us to do the dishes. Marshall said something to the effect of, well, dad, all you do is just walk around the crater and have fun all day. Like, <laughs> oh, we did. <laughs> It wasn't it wasn't perceived as work because we we've experienced it as fun. So I just thought that was funny. Yeah. I think first understand you understand now how much work it was, but well, yeah, how much work it was, but just also that that opportunity to be exposed to that. We, you know, the last interview, I wasn't even part of this one, but that um Melissa did and with Anabel Kudis was mentioning, for example, just not being aware that this stuff is available to do for work, right? Like how do you come into learning about um, and you guys kind of just grew up with it where it was second nature. So how, how special is that? My favorite my memories with Marshall was huddling up on the side of one of the cinder cones doing baby silver sword counts. We were so cold. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and maybe that was not as fun, but right, you know, looking back, it was a great cinder Yeah, working for Lloyd was a license to hike anywhere in the crater, go off trail, because you know, we were all doing research. So yeah. everybody else had to stay on trail, but right. we get to go up to that cinder cone that nobody else can walk on. Sure. Got to see what's there. I was really wondering what was it like to be in the field with him? You know, what was, what was his, how did he express himself? Was he excited when he found new plants or what, what was that experience life? But like both as a child and as a colleague. He was, he's, he's the last one to give up. I know that he could walk for days. Yeah. Very serious. Even from the time we were like little hiking with him, he just started. You don't keep up. You're a candy ass. If you're going to go with him, you keep up and you take care of yourself, you know, mm-hmm. and he's very serious, very focused. It'd be like that with Costco too. Just <laughs> keep up with it with Costco. <laughs> you mean shopping? In and out. Yeah. Just, just getting food. is just. Oh, maybe that's where you picked that up, Chuck. (laughs) (laughs) It's my mentor in many ways. Yes. (laughs) Business. Pat, I'm curious, did you um, get to go in the field with Lloyd or was he already sort of like not doing too much of that when you were um, in the field? Because I do want to say for our listeners, Pat here, am I saying this correctly, that you were the very first one to discover that there was Myconia in East Maui? 
escaped out of the botanical garden out there and helped to galvanize. Oh, no, no, that was Betsy Gagne. Um, I was the first to find it in West Maui. Oh, I see. Had Melastome Action Committee been um, formed yet? You know, the precursor to the Invasive Species Committee statewide? No, right around that time in 1991, we were still doing myconia control, or we were beginning to do it mm. um, in the area, Heilani Gardens. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a picture I can't find that I used to have um, that has Brooke and I think Marshall in it and Steve Anderson, and I can't remember who else. But yeah, we I think that was 1991 before the Mellistome Action Committee was formed. We were out whacking Myconia and uh, Heilani Gardens. Mm-hmm. I've had a few field with Lloyd, not in the National Park, of course, in other places, because he embraced uh, the vision of totality yes. with uh, controlling species, which nobody else thought at that time. And and because of that that way of thinking about it all, um, he influenced Don Reeser, of course, and everybody else. And, you know, I'd say a lot of these partnerships were based on Lloyd being in the background, suggesting to the managers and leaders um, that we got to take care of this whole thing on an island-wide basis. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about that that perspective of thinking island-wide and thinking bigger, and I'm imagining that yours experience as well, Pat, but him and just thinking that having to kind of be responsible for a place as large as the park kind of forces you into, right? You can't just deal with your, the backyard here. I mean, this is something you really have to think at scale, which seems to be pretty important to set the stage for what's being done now. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and um, the thing is, is a lot of these people that worked in the natural areas still felt the boundaries and the pressure to stay within mm-hmm. their boundaries. Mm-hmm. And they got the bureaucratic uh, mantra that you just don't, go into Mm. somebody else's turf or even talk to them about (laughs) approaching that issue. Um, So I would say he was the vanguard of all that, of working cross boundaries. I was going to say, as long as we're talking about Myconia, he also was a leader in pulling together the 2009 Myconia Conference on Maui, bringing together experts from across the world. So again, looking beyond just the borders here. And and he knew and had very strong feelings about who should be invited, who are the people that we needed to have there, because he was always so knowledgeable Mm -hmm. about the fields that he worked in. He kept up to date on literature. He knew he knew who knew what and who should be at the table to help guide us in our work. And he also was very involved in the the planning sessions that we had leading up to that conference, including the um, very discerning decisions about which beverages to serve that had to be tested. (laughs) Really important. He was involved in all aspects. (laughs) The extent to which extending himself beyond the park boundaries, beyond what his like, you know, immediate responsibility was and dragging you guys along. (laughs) Yeah, the airport runway thing, which became a really big deal to him, that international flights directly into Maui Mm, would be such a disaster. And that that's certainly outside the park boundaries, but the the sense that everything 
everything was connected. Mm-hmm. That was a piece of protecting Haleakala and Kipahulu and all these places that were precious. Led to the creation of a facility on Maui because of the lawsuits that followed from that. So it wasn't just, we have to do this. It led to lasting change. And I work there now. <laughs> so I, I ushered that in when it opened. Oh, very, how cool is that? Yeah, it pretty much changed my major my last year and said, you're going to do this. I was like, sounds good. I wanted to live on my- <laughs> I like it. I wanted to live on my forever. I didn't want to go anywhere. So I was like, job on my It's great. Yeah. The building is, was uh, finally built in 2008. I remember at the meetings, you would have to, you had to justify it with the Department of Transportation. And we'd always joke around, like we would make up stuff together like the night before, like, oh, the wind's going to blow up all these insects to the Haleakala National Park and they're buying it. Like, <laughs> we just, we'd, we'd strategize just funny like situations and, um, you know, he would go to the meetings and talk about him you know we're just, we just i always thought we we're joking around but he really would say that kind of stuff with confidence and right. he's like i'm a scientist you're gonna <laughs> <laughs> it's all connected and just to be able to see or anticipate change right whether the change it's you want to see or not right but just to be able to think even myconia back then and be like this is this will be a game changer if we don't deal with it now i think part of that was he had traveled extensively and mm. seen what brown tree snakes did in Guam and right. you know, mm-hmm. what what Myconia did in Tahiti and um, you know, even models of managing invasive species in, in New Zealand. Um, mm-hmm. he, he really thought broadly and had integrated that into his thinking. And I, I think that expanded his perspective on things. Oh yeah, that's wonderful. Cause a lot of times we, I think here you have a tendency, the problems are so immediate. There's so many to deal with in Hawaii that oftentimes we're not thinking, or I should say, maybe it's not, the opportunities aren't always there to, to, to be, you know, to go and visit other places and understand. Um, but it's, that's cool to hear how, how much value that can bring. One of the biggest things he first did was, you know, I don't know if he's hundred percent responsible for fencing in the park and getting rid of the ungulates, but I'm pretty sure his science, led to that. I mean, I, I know he wasn't out there building the fence today, but um, I'm pretty sure he, he noticed that the goats were eating silver swords and that shouldn't happen. That, that's right. exactly right, Marshall, because when I was speaking with Ron, he, he said, you know, the legacy, two things. He talked about, you know, teaming up with Don Reeser to stop the expansion of Kahului and just raising the specter of invasive species just generally. And then the other part, major, was that the, the science that he brought, which, you know, that's what the justification for the fence rested upon him and Cliff Smith's work. They, that was the only way they were going to be able to justify the cost of that thing. It's just the project itself. I mean, you think mm-hmm. about fencing in that place, in that terrain. I mean, yeah, unreal. I made a bulleted list of all the things that like Lloyd was involved with. And um, like you were saying, like not noticing the boundaries, being visionary. Those are the words that constantly come to mind. Also humility, but, um, foresight, whatever else you want to call it, like climate change. He has helped establish this Haleakala climate network with Tom Giampaluka. That was another reason why I was brought to Hawaii. I was like a volunteer sent out into the field to maintain these things that were constantly breaking down. (laughs) And this project that was supposed to be short term and end, Lloyd uh, was kind of a champion for, for keeping it going. And, you know, uh, Tom has produced like, you know, this foundational work the foundation of like climate data for the entire state and that continues to go today so you know he's like anticipating the effects of climate change on the environment 
course, like these um, incipient weeds that could transform ecosystems like myconia, pampas grass, fountain grass, mm. runway expansion, which led to improved biosecurity. He was involved with the, the update the last time the state noxious weed list was updated in 1992 and species like myconia clydemia and tibicina were added right. were all because of like lloyd's direct input and we've never been able to get an update since then the melastome action committee which led to the first statewide invasive species committee you know the first invasive species committee that's now duplicated on every island right. roadside surveys with forest and kim star early detection botanists were hired on every island to identify new incipient invaders he's strong advocate for biocontrol which you know is like is possibly the only solution for some of these widespread weeds he hired yeah. ellen van gelder to write a rapid uh i read imported fire ant management plan anticipating mm -hmm. the arrival mm -hmm. of stinging ants before little fire ants even arrived um the 643 pest statewide reporting system and he wanted like one standard place where you could report invasive species and then the austropuxinia rust that was um you know appearing and you know completely annihilated rose apple on all the islands but it was also affecting ohia and he anticipated that more virulent strains of a pathogen could um affect ohia and of course um we're now dealing with rapid ohia death so lloyd kept you know it was like almost like he had a crystal ball predicting what problems would happen in the future and try to address them before they became widespread so i mean yeah he he, he was amazing yeah it's kind of an incredible i don't know if pedigree is the right word but just the list of stuff that he's involved in yeah and it's funny because i'm listening there's like multiple ones that like affected my career frankly you know i was like that i didn't even know about till just now um, I worked on an incipient weed detection project on Kauai. That was one of my kind of shoe-ins to get a job at the botanical garden over there. So how cool is that? I was just going to say, as well as the little fire ant detection process and getting that, he was also involved in developing the mm -hmm. weekend mm -hmm. curriculum, getting a place-based, Maui-based science curriculum into the schools that led to having students collect little fire ant samples, which then led to the, and directly to the first detection of little fire ants on Maui. And then also writing a, a technical paper on that. There's just nothing that he seemed like if he put his mind to it, he would throw himself completely into it with just highest standards. He really wanted to tackle global warming problem. It's just, it was, it was one of those things that was just like, uh, I was like, I don't know about that one. I think in his later days, he was, concerned that global warming was going to undo all that he had done. And it was so encouraging at his memorial service and, and even sitting here to hear that he put in motion things that that are protecting these precious places. Right. Mm -hmm. I just think about all that work about how much more resilient these places are to the changes that are going to come because of that, just the baseline there, right? These these ecosystems are going to be that much that, that much better shape. I mean, they obviously still need a lot of help. And that's really incredible. I, I do want to uh, switch a little bit and talk about the personal side of Lloyd. <laughs> he's, he's quite an intellect. I mean, a powerhouse, right? It's just just to have a conversation with him could, could be intimidating if you weren't prepared. But he was just the kindest person too. And also really practical. I mean, Chuck, you worked with him. He brought you out as like right out of college, right? And I like to tell the story. I've said this before on this podcast that 
he brought you over to help fix the weather stations. You were in pre-med at the time and on your way to medical school and ditched that, came over to work on these weather stations that were- I heard you were a computer expert, Chuck. Well, I can't say that on my very meager resume at the time, one of the things I had as a qualification for a job was um, I worked in a computer lab in college, uh, but I didn't mention that that involved me like basically signing in and checking people out <laughs> while they worked at a, a computer. And I knew zero about computers at the time, but Lloyd hired me because he thought I had computer expertise. And um, <laughs> fortunately I was able to um, fake it long enough until I actually learned on the job and um, was, was able to um, keep these weather stations <laughs> kind of going with, with uh, band-aids and uh, duct tape and, uh, yeah, back then I had to manually download data from these weather station data loggers using a <laughs> laptop that was the size of a small suitcase. <laughs> and uh, it was actually belonged to the superintendent at the time. So I would always bring it back and it would be covered in dust and cinder and everything. And finally, Lloyd said, oh, well, we need to get computers for our office. So then he he went out and he splurged and he got all these nice new computers for our office that were, he had a laptop that was the, the size of like three car batteries with the keyboard that attached to the front, but, but it had a handle on the top so you could carry it like a suitcase. So it was a, it was a portable computer, uh, but it, it weighed about a hundred pounds. Um, he, he was, uh, you know, able to, you know, keep these weather stations going, found funding for them. And now they're all like these like world-class, you know, scientific instruments and everything is remote and digitally. And you know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, transferred data transfer wirelessly, but, you know, I started long enough ago where that wasn't even an option. And, um, yeah, he recognized the importance of collecting that kind of data and just the continuity. And, you know, at the time, I think he anticipated like climate change and the effects on these high elevation species, but, you know, it was almost like the data was what was valuable. And he was like, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, be able to use this for so many things. One of the things I really wanted to comment about Lloyd that I'll, I'll never forget is like, you know, I, I worked at the National Park when I started out. Everybody was either in a Park Service uniform or they were like a field slob like me. So we were just wearing like clothes and, you know, kind of ready camos and whatever else. Lloyd was always impeccably dressed. Uh, yes. Button down shirt, <laughs> collar, you know. And he kind of like set this professional standard that, you know, eventually kind of rubbed off on me, but it took a while for it to sink in. Um, so, you know, no matter we would even go into the field and he'd be wearing the button down shirt. And, you know, it was just he was the the, the consummate professional and set a high bar. Um, Melissa, this isn't actually related, but it was a funny thing. I remember you and I were in Kahului renewing a hunter safety training. Okay. And um, we had 20 minutes to get something to eat in between because it was in the evening. We went to Wendy's in Kahului uh -huh. and ran into Lloyd there. <laughs> <laughs> he was acting like we busted him at Wendy's. 
<laughs> you remember that? Oh but, my God! But the funny thing was, it was his 60th birthday, right? And you remember, I had just oh, had my no. 50th birthday party at that time, and I was like, "God, you're 10 years older than me." Um, but um, it was pretty funny, and you and I just wanted to do something to him, like put a candle on the burgers, or something like that. Yeah, go grab a bottle of wine or something. Yeah. Oh my God. But yeah. so, I'm always like, no, 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 don't trouble yourself for me. Yeah. That's sick. But that was funny. Yeah. I mean, he, he was, he was so practical too. When Chuck was delayed, not lost, I, I suppose in the uh, Kipuhulu on a mountain with John Price, you guys were like two days walking down from the top of the mountain just decided to round, go ramble and like nobody knew where you were. And it was like, should we call a helicopter? Should we send in the search team? This story deserves like its whole own podcast, I feel like. But <laughs> I've been privy to it from the source. Art was like, oh, I'm going to go track him. And, you know, there was all these ideas about how people in the park were going to find the two of you interns wandering around somewhere. You guys finally made it down, right, Chuck, out of the out of the forest. But you weren't at work, right? It was 9 a.m. on Monday or something. Told the story a bunch of times. So I'll try to keep it really brief. But, uh, you know, John and I were going to hike from the top of Haleakala, the sliding sands through the crater and down to the Hana Highway. We thought we would do it in two days. So a Saturday and a Sunday, you know, call it the arrogance and the ignorance of youth or whatever. But, you know, we we. We thought that if we made it out on Sunday night, you know, we'd show up to work on Monday and nobody would be the wiser. The only person knew that we were going on this hike was uh, John's father at the time. So needless to say, we didn't make it out in two days. We It took a whole second, whole Monday of hiking through the thickest, rugged, most overgrown, wet terrain that Maui has to offer. I can't even imagine. And we finally made it out late Monday evening. John called his father to let him know we were alive. And the only person I could think of to call was was Lloyd, because I thought, oh, we're, we're going to be in so much trouble. Like, we didn't show up to work today. Um, we didn't know at the time, but John's father had called the police and the fire department <laughs> to say we were missing. Um so the park was the park was going to rally and do a search and rescue for us. The superintendent wanted to call my parents on the mainland and say I was missing. Man. And one of the two things I have to thank Lloyd for is he talked him out of that. He said, let's just wait Smart. before we thank the parents. And then the other thing he did was he, he didn't um, fire me because after I came out, I called Lloyd and I said, I'm so sorry. I, I, we caused you so much trouble. It was stupid. We didn't have radios with us, so we couldn't let anybody know where we were, that we were okay. And like Lloyd was just quiet listening on the other end. I was waiting him for this to say something. And finally he spoke up and he said, well, I'm just really glad you, you guys are okay. And he goes, um, did, did you guys see any myconia? While you were <laughs> and, and that was his like, you know, we need number one on the Island. So as soon as he said that, I was like, wow, he's, he's we're 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 okay he's okay he's like let's move on let's talk about work now talk about work on the payphone in what happened. and um <laughs> yeah i after that i was like okay i'm not gonna do it i get my one freebie with lloyd and i'm not gonna put him through that situation again so right. fortunately we didn't see my my coney at the time either so 
he was he had such exacting standards um, oh, yeah. for accuracy, of course, in anything that MISC put out for public outreach or other materials. And so if it was something that I knew he, of course, would care about or had knowledge on, I would always run it by him to make sure that it was correct. And but but one situation I remember was being in a meeting that was of the, the folks who were working on the Hawaii curriculum. And I think Shannon Wynicki still feels a little bit scarred by this experience because she had talked about I don't remember which speech was iron ironwood or um, the the and the impact on the soil and she had described its allelopathic characteristics, but from Lloyd there's debate about that what what actually works and what does that term mean and and he she used it again and he said I never want to hear that word used again. <laughs> oh my God! It was just. I went in the room like, oh, okay. <laughs> I still, I can't hear that word without thinking of, of Lloyd and making sure that you know what something means biologically if if you're going to use it in in some kind of presentation mm-hmm. context. But he also had this way of when you're, I I had the opportunity to travel often with him to meetings on Oahu for the the CGAPS coordinating group on alien pest species, which of course he was a, a key part of. And we would, it was also back in the day when you could, you didn't have to have assigned seats. And so you could very easily sit together traveling. And I just have this sense of sitting next to him and he would lower his head a little bit and speak mm-hmm. in a way you had to really work to hear him sometimes. But I always felt like I was a co-conspirator, you know, that I was in on some secret thing, whether we're strategizing about the meeting that yeah. was coming up or what to do with the agriculture. Just I just felt like I was so lucky to be brought into this this inner circle and, mm. and, and it carried through and how he how he portrayed things and said things and interacted with you. Yeah. I mean he he was so brilliant, right? I mean again, just having a normal conversation was was sometimes challenging. And yet at the same time was so self-deprecating. I mean, I can't tell you how many MISC meetings I sat in there where he would just, someone would say something and then he would counter something in the most sort of like subtle, but clearly he was just right on the money. And then he'd just say something, well, I'm just going to shut up now. You know, and I mean, I, how many times did he say that? Like after he would, <laughs> he was absolutely right about whatever he was saying. Um, well, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to do. I, this kind of comes up a lot. Like it's hard to be critical here in Hawaii, right? To kind of provide like a counterpoint sometimes, I think, because everyone wants to be supportive of all the work that's going on. Right. And sometimes yeah. when people are maybe banging their head against the wall, that it's like so refreshing. I think when people are like, wait a minute, maybe that's not yeah. working and, you know, maybe we need to do something different. So, I mean, it's pretty, pretty special special to have folks like that who are kind of crossing all these bridges, first of all, right, that we've been talking about, but also willing to kind of say, yeah, Mm -hmm. actually, that might not really make the most sense. um, Yeah. If you can do it elegantly, tactfully. I know. (laughs) Any other example? I'm trying to just think of there's other stories about where he kind of was able to maybe steer things in in a better way or kind of you know, in the, in the seat of controversy, right? Like one of the things I think about fencing, we've talked a lot about this with other, other folks on the show, but just that being in the the beginning of that had to have been really hard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I uh, just thought of 
something that he definitely influenced in terms of the Nature Conservancy's view and my work. Um, it was uh, 1995, and I had done some herbicide trials in the Hana Maconia Corps. Lloyd, uh, Alan Holt, myself, and Bob Hobby were out there. And when it was done, um, Bob had to take off in a state vehicle, but um, Lloyd and Alan and I drove back together. And on the way, Lloyd says, oh, let's go down Lower Nahiku. I wanted to show you guys something. So he shows us uh, the beginning of the Maconia invasion in Lower Nahiku along Makapipi Stream, East Maui. And so here's Alan Holt and myself and Lloyd, all three of us kind of bean poles, squeezing through this bamboo that later when I went there with crews that were a little bit wide and hefty, <laughs> I could not get between the bamboo. <laughs> but we squeezed through, the, managed to squeeze through the bamboo and get up to what they called King's Pond. And then we saw the first one and it looked like, oh God, there's just six myconia plants here. Let's pull them up. Well. Uh, 300 plants <laughs> later, we're still pulling. <laughs> and finally, Lloyd, Lloyd says, yeah. okay, it's, it's enough. We know what's here. <laughs> but because mm. of that, he influenced Alan Holt. Because I had been bugging the Nature Conservancy since 1991 mm -hmm. to let me work off boundaries and uh, work on some of these populations of Meconia. And because... Lloyd was such an influence to Alan. Alan had quite a few experiences in the field with Lloyd, too, and really respected him as a mentor. Um, and just because of Lloyd's view of working outside the boundaries, he influenced Alan enough, who was my boss's boss, <laughs> to say, no, let Pat loose on the Maconia satellite populations. Um, which, you know, was a lot of work and mosquito bites, et cetera, for me. Um, bruised knees. But um, at the same time, um, you know, I really took pride in it because I felt like we were getting on top of it before it got out of control. And um, I owe all that to Lloyd. It was just, you know, the way he could influence people with few words. But that's because everybody very much took him serious. And Lloyd says a few words to you. You know those words are concrete. They really mean something. So Alan listened and um, yeah, the rest is history. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, Marshall, um, you know, in your work with your dad, um, what was it like, you know, for you when, once you started working at Hawaii Department of Agriculture, you took this, in, went into this career path where it was very much influenced by your dad. Um, did you guys talk about work together? Every night we'd drink wine talk about work and strategize of how to get things like, you know, information to sh get rules changed to, you know, they just, they finally did this Mertesia mm -hmm. ban. So you, you can't import Mertesia anymore, but that's a long time coming, you know, getting inside information, I guess you'd call it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and little fire ant stuff, like discussed and discussed with each other, like how was there about trying to stop LFA from even moving anywhere. Either that or watching baseball, talking about work. That's what we do. That's what we do. Many bottles of wine. I just was saying, like, when I, even when I was in college, I could always send him one of my papers, like, what do you think of this? And he, he'd always say, just send it back redacted and it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of just had to do now, like, I, 
sometimes I write stuff in emails. I'm like, God, not as savvy as I was before. Cause I could always send my email. Like, you know, if I had like a big email to go out or something, I could always send it to him and he'd fix it up for me. You know? So that's definitely one thing I miss for sure. No. Yeah. He was a great writer. I know that. And it did speak to his humility. I remember him reading one of my college papers and I had, it was rushing things and trying to make stuff up and he read it and probably knew it was categorically incorrect. But instead of pointing that out, he said, well, maybe you should find a source to cite this <laughs> assertion. You know, like, <laughs> he just was like, you're full of it. You're just making this up to get your paper in. He was just, he just gently suggested that I find a source yeah, to cite. Tactfully <laughs> calling bullshit. When uh, when my kids were little, he really wanted to show them um, Haleakala. This is probably in the early 2000s. And really wanted them to see a nene. We had drove, drove all over Hosmer's and the visitor center. And, you know, the kids were little and they were at the edge of their tolerance for such craziness. Um, and we, we were right there by the, we drove into the staff area and by the barracks where the office was and had some mohella berries and were feeding a nene. Um, and a, a ranger who didn't know who my dad was came out oh. and was going to write him a ticket. <laughs> It was the only time that I ever saw my dad pull rank. The ranger said something to the effect like, I'm sure, I'm sure the federal government would like nothing more than for me to give you a ticket for feeding this endangered species. Yeah. And I was in the back going, oh my gosh, let's get out of here. I was just freaking out. The kids were just completely silent. And, and my dad goes, well, I, I would argue with that assertion. I, I don't think that they would like you giving me a ticket at all. And then he started rattling off some names and I was like trying to back him away. He was getting a little confrontational, which was very much Thanks. not his nature, but he was like, I'm feeding them native berries. And, you know, these are my kids and my grandkids. And we wanted them to see a name oh pass on this, uh, the importance of this ecosystem. I'm like, Wowzer. Ranger who looked like probably some 18, 19 year old guy, you know, he just backed off. I ran into Nan Kabatbot a few years later and asked if it had made the rounds with the National Park staff. And she was like, oh, that was Lloyd? <laughs> Don't tell me. And then try to teach your kids what is the right thing to do in this situation? <laughs> like, is this okay? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yes, that was a law enforcement, federal law enforcement <laughs> officer that your grandfather was arguing with. Yeah, I so, so logical. I think Chuck, I mean, I hope you don't mind me saying this. I think that you described working with Art and Lloyd was like, Lloyd was like Dr. Spock. And I don't know, Art is like Captain Kirk. I'm not sure if that's what you said, but forever they were, the two of them were really the dynamic duo in research, you know, on, on that mountain and outside. Was it was it good cop, bad cop? No, they, they both had a shared vision. They just had you know, different personalities, but they really, really complemented each other. So it was like, you know, yeah, it was an effective, you know, when, when the two of them were like focused on something, like if you were on the wrong side, you better watch out, you know, <laughs> yeah, unstoppable force. I did want to share um, one other like memory about you, you were talking about like Lloyd and, you know, uh, another lesson he taught me was, you know, about, um, the importance of maybe you know not being controversial just for just because you disagreed with somebody politically um and that you know there's there's like uh you know big bigger picture issues to 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 take into consideration uh back in the early 90s when it, when it was working for him and um 
Clinton was president and the midterm elections had taken place and uh, the Republicans had swept the House and uh, Newt Gingrich became the new Speaker of the House. And he was pretty famous, like internationally for kind of wanting to take an axe to government and being kind of like maybe not as supportive of conservation and everything. So um, needless to say, I and um, the other, all the other young idealistic conservationists working for Lloyd um, loathed this person. And um, one time we were sitting in the office and I was there with Paul Krushelniski and the phone rings and person on the other end of the phone said, this is Newt Gingrich. And Paul says, who's this really? And the person on the other end says, this is the Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. And Paul's like, yeah, okay. And, <laughs> and he's like, I want to talk to the head of research. And so Paul gives the phone to Lloyd and says, uh, this guy says he's Newt Gingrich. <laughs> and he's like, somebody's pulling a prank on us. And Lloyd's in his office for a little while. And uh, he's talking for a little while. And uh, he hangs up the phone and he said, Pretty sure that was that was Newt Gingrich, <laughs> and, it, and it was because he was arranging a trip to Haleakala. And he wanted to visit the park and meet with the scientist. So Lloyd arranged this visit with him, and he had Paul and I and um, uh, another employee of the Nature Conservancy go on a hike with Newt Gingrich. His I think it was his second wife at the time. And um, he, he's since had a few others, um, Newt Gingrich and uh, and Secret Service. And we got to hike into Waikamoy. I despised this person at the time, but Lloyd was so diplomatic and cordial and talking about the importance of the work. And yeah. I mean, that was like another just lesson in, um, you know, how you can disagree with somebody without being disagreeable. And, you know, right. I mean, he was the, like the epitome of like a class act. I had all these yeah. things I wanted to say in my brain <laughs> around. I wasn't going to say, them, <laughs> but I imagined all these things I wanted to say. And I just like took Lloyd's lead. And he, you know, I, I, you know, I think he, he, if nothing else, yeah. he left a really good impression on the program at the park and the importance of the work that, that he was supporting. So Chuck, I, if you have that picture of you and Carol Gents and Newt, I'd love to see that. I've been looking for that for yeah, years. I have a copy of that oh, somewhere. Okay. I got, I did get Newt Gingrich to um, Shaka for the camera. So that. Yeah. Well, please send me that Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got that somewhere. I mean, that was like pre-digital. So I have a, like a hard copy of it floating around somewhere in a photo album. I'll, I'll get that to you. Oh. back. <laughs> One of his favorite parts of that story was that um, he recommended, I guess, Newt Gingrich asked him where to eat breakfast and we'd always eat at Charlie's. So he recommended to go to eat Charlie's and pancakes. And I guess in the Maui News is a picture of Newt Gingrich at Charlie's with a big pancake. <laughs> I my dad was like, yeah. he's pretty proud of that. It was a funny, yeah, right. funny uh, part Politics of that. and conservation. <laughs> was thinking and following up with Chuck's comment in that while he kept his opinions to himself during the trip with Newt, he certainly was a very political person. He followed very closely and those, his interest inspired numerous conversations about those things. But, but also one of the things that I remember about him and that falling into that visionary and that bigger picture perspective was that he 
it must have been in the early 2000s that he managed to wrangle an invitation to Mayor Eric Hawa's uh, informal agriculture advisory group because he really felt they needed to know what MISC was doing and, and about the key invasive species issues. And, But I think also because he more broadly really understood that nexus between agriculture and invasive species. And I just was amazed that he somehow had managed to do that. And we, we, we kept showing up at the meetings for a while uninvited until eventually it became obvious that we really weren't part of the group. But, but I just really appreciated his ability to, to see those connections and figure out the political angles as well, because he was really very, he may not have said much as we've pointed out when, when he didn't need to, but he was very much part of not just the work helping guide what we did here on Maui, but also statewide and even nationally and internationally. You now it's easy to, to see the things, the ways that we connected with him directly, but he really was known and respected internationally as well. Absolutely. I mean, I would just ask if folks have thoughts about where, even from where your perspective is, and I'm, I've obviously you've all been influenced by him in so many different ways, but, uh, you know, where you think his vision has kind of shaped the direction you see your work going or, you know, conservation more broadly. I mean, you've spoken to all these sort of things that he, you know, kind of set these things in motion that have been so critical and wh where he would have... You know, are we, are, are we living up to his expectations now or what? I really miss his advice because, I mean, I if if I was making a decision on anything, you know, related to my current work, which is involving biosecurity, invasive species management and mitigation, like just having him as a sounding board to talk things out, you know, just makes you so much, you know, more confident that your position. Yeah is the right one or maybe that you should reconsider because you know i mean he was he was like you know respectful but he didn't suffer fools and he would let you know if you were not mm. you know if you were on the wrong track he would not be afraid to you know in in the in the politest way um like like uh, brooke was saying when he asked her for you know to look up citations or sources he would he would let you know why you know without being rude about it but um i i will i will miss that because and and i do also just miss all the other conversations he was like a brilliant scientist but 90 percent of the time we were talking about politics or sports or current events or just whatever else. So, I mean, um, right. he, he had such a, such a, a, a brilliant mind. I try to imagine what he would, um, what he would say when I'm trying to make a decision about something, but there's no, there's no replacing, um, you know, the original source. And so I'm just really, really grateful and privileged that he was the yeah. first person I got to work for in Hawaii. I can't imagine like, being in a better position than that. So thank you, Lloyd. And I, I also have to say that in in my continuing work that I've been doing with MISC, I am privileged to see Lloyd's lasting impact coming through in his son, Marshall, because I see you, all that, all that, um, can, with that, that, talking and strategizing that you did with dad he you it's still happening i see that's ways that you're willing to step out and do things that are the right thing to do because you have that and i'm really grateful and lucky to see that and have that with you thank you marshall <laughs>
Jenny Marshall. Yeah, I think for the, the personal and the family legacy, Marshall's really carried that on really well and um, had a sweet moment with my daughter. She's 17 um, and really has his spirit. She's been in the backcountry in the Sierras. and uh, But we were at the, the San Francisco Botanical Garden and uh, they have a used book section. And she came across a, a tome, a, a large green book. I think it was published by UH and looked it up. And her grandfather was, it, there was an article by my dad. I think Chuck, your name was in it. There, there were a bunch of like scientific articles about invasive species. And- Brooke, I know the book you were referring to, uh, Biological oh, Invasions, uh, Dan Simberloff. Your dad gave me a copy of that book. Yes. Yes. It, she was just trembling with excitement. And, and even just this week, uh, her major at Berkeley's Global Studies, but she was telling me she wanted to add a wow. a, a minor cool. in natural resource management um, because she just spent time in Kyrgyzstan. And so seeing these post-communist countries in Central Asia manage their natural resources and all the kind of political and cultural challenges. And it just really moved me that his... She didn't get to know him very well, but she, that spirit is just in her and she's just hungry for research. And um, she's convinced Marshall that she can come this summer and repel off cliffs. And um, just I just see his spirit in in her. And um, I miss I miss him so much, but it, it just encourages me that that he's still around and what you guys are doing and. And our, our kids, you know. I'm definitely going to have a glass of red wine tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Oh, I had one one more little story I wanted to share about my, please, my dad's legacy. Please. I'm sorry about talking too much. So um, in San Francisco, we have the New Zealand Christmas tree uh, related to the Ohia. And uh, Marsh, you probably know the family or the genus. I can't think of it at the moment. Um, but it looks very much like... Yeah, yeah, they look very much like Ohia trees, and I just always think of my dad. And uh, in the neighborhood we live in in San Francisco, we had a row of them cr- kind of across the street from us. And during the pandemic, there was a homeless encampment there, and they were they were just destroyed. And I was inordinately emotional about these trees being destroyed. Um, but it was part of the pandemic and this whole situation. Well, on his birthday, February fourth, twenty twenty two, the city showed up and planted a new batch of those trees right in front of our house. And it just felt like, it felt like his message to me that he was still, he was still around. Uh, um, I love that story. That was, it was really beautiful. All of what you have said, both, you know, his professional yeah. legacy and, you know, the effect that we had, he had on all of us. I just want to thanks for for, yeah. for for coming on and the idea to do this, which I think was maybe Melissa and Chuck and some other, a few of you others just had to have the idea to do this was just, yeah. uh, it's Thank great. you all so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for pulling this together, Melissa. Well done. Thanks. Well, I just said you'll have to write a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's still a lot we didn't I talk know. about. You'll need another couple hours. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>